0: I always hate, I always hate interrupting that incredible op- time of fellowship. Isn't awesome? It's awesome just to give your brother a hug. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for how you stand for us, even when we don't quite realize it. Even when the chips are down and it just seems like heaven is silent. Lord, you're standing with us and for us. We just praise you for that this morning. In your son's name, amen. All right, well, you, you all know I, I love to tell stories, right? I'm going to knock this over, I'm sure, because I'm going to get probably kind of animated today. But So I love to tell stories, and and I love great stories. And in a great story, you always have an incredible villain. I mean, just a guy you just love to hate, right? You always kind of have this incredible villain and then this amazing hero and then some crazy, unsurmountable obstacle that you just could never get over, and then some amazing, suspenseful twist, and then maybe along the way, a little bit of humor, and then some just awesome resolution that just makes you feel like all is right in the world. I mean, that's that's the perfect story, right? And so that's the story I'm always looking for, and it just so happens that our passage this morning is exactly that kind of story. So, instead of telling you a story, we're going to read a story that Luke tells us about the early church. So, we're going to go to Acts, Acts chapter 12, so if you can flip there real quick, and we'll go right after it. So, Acts Acts chapter 12, verse 1, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, right? Herod, obviously, the villain, and he is... He is a disgusting villain. He is not a good guy, all right? Just without boring you with all the research, he's not a good guy. He's put in power by an emperor, a guy in Rome who becomes emperor. His name is Calugula. And if you've ever heard of him, he is one of the most nasty emperors in Roman history, all right? He's a childhood buddy to King Herod. And it's this emperor that puts King Herod in charge of Palestine. So this is not a nice guy, all right? King Herod is not a nice guy. So at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So persecution has begun to fall on the church in Jerusalem. It's beginning to scatter the church. God is sending the word out one way or the other to the surrounding area, and the persecution is part of that. And so this is where we find the context of the story. Verse 2, "...he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword." Yeah, I know I have. Have you ever been really up against it? Have you ever had that, you know, bad news from the doctor? Pray, those are times of earnest prayer, aren't they not? Those times that you've lost your job, the times that you've had some reversal that you didn't expect, are those times that we have we make earnest prayers? I've definitely had those times of earnest prayer. If you live long enough in this life, if you haven't, you Known the really the depths of what that means, sooner or later he will. I'm just here to tell you that. So, and this is where we find the church. They are making earnest prayer. Herod's already killed James. And now, and it's a great campaign strategy for him because the Jews are opposing the church at this point. Not all the Jews. I mean, essentially the church are all Jewish people. But some of the Jews are opposing the message of the gospel. And Herod kills James and puts Peter in prison and notices. How much the people are like, yeah, you know, you've taken down this, these rabble, these people who are rebelling against against what we hold dear. So he puts Peter in prison and it's clear and it's obvious that he intends to kill Peter just like he killed James. But the church is making earnest prayer for him. Verse 6, and this is where we get to really cool hero stuff. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. So he's guarded, he's in chains. He's got two shoulders, one on each side, plus soldiers out in front of the gate guarding his cell, plus the outer gate. So he is in a maximum security prison, right? He ain't getting out of there. Verse seven. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, "Get up quickly." Can you imagine that? Being in prison, all of a sudden, you're here asleep between these two guards, and all of a sudden there's an angel poking you in the rib. Hey, come on, get up, get dressed. That would be like crazy. Get up quickly and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So he's like still, like he's out of it. I'm like, Is this a dream? Is this real? What's going on? Doors are just opening by themselves? What's all this mean? It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of, of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So God does this incredible, amazing intervention and rescues and saves Peter. Does Jesus rescue and save? Absolutely, he rescues and saves. Even when the chips are down, even when it's maximum security, even when there doesn't seem to be any hope"? and then the church is praying earnestly, Jesus, Jesus saves and he breaks Peter out of jail. Verse 12, when you realize this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Where many were gathered together and were praying. So they're still praying, right? They're earnestly praying for Peter who's been put in prison and they're thinking, oh, he's going to be killed. And they're praying for him. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So Rhoda, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's Peter. And she takes off and leaves him there. And, is like, uh, hello, <laughs> Bueller. <laughs> Anybody? What? Anybody home? That cracks me up. I love that. This about scripture too, because it it's like so real. I mean, isn't that like just? Don't you just absolutely see that happen? Isn't that so human? It's so real. You know, scripture. Scripture is not mythology. No. Scripture is oftentimes historical narrative. In this case right here, we're looking at a passage that's historical narrative, and the earmark of historical narrative is these little funny little things, quirky little humanisms that go, you know what? You can't make this stuff up. This is, this is what happened. right?" And it just cracks me up. Poor Rhoda, for all of church history. She's known as the one who left Peter at the gate. Right? <laughs> we'll, be in, we'll be in heaven, we'll be like, hey Rhoda, got a joke for you, knock knock. <laughs> will we do that now nah, we'll, we'll be fully redeemed we won't we won't we won't make fun of people for our own entertainment will we in heaven i don't think so but she's she's like any of us right any of us would would do that because it's like so miraculous right it's amazing but catch this i mean not only does she leave peter at the gate but look at what the rest of the this group of people who are praying earnestly for Peter, what's their response? Oh, yeah, we knew it. We knew God would save him. God would release him. Is that their response? No. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped over a part. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> Recognize Peter's voice. I'm going to go back to 14, actually. Recognize Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. 15. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. So here they are. They're praying earnestly for Peter, praying that God would save him. God saves him. And then they're like, Nah, can't happen. You're not out there. You're crazy, Rhoda. You know, what are you on? What's going on here? But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, "Tell these things to James and to the brothers." This is a different James, right? Beginning of the story, there's James, and then this is a different James that he's talking about. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter escapes, and he goes to a place where he can hide out for a bit because you know Herod is after Herod's campaigning for political gain, and Peter is a target for for Herod to try to take advantage of. 18, now, when when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. I love the way the Bible sometimes really understates things. No little disturbance among the guards who who were guarding Peter. These guys are, their life is at risk, and as we're about to see, actually, they lose their life because Peter escaped. So, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. They were freaking out. They knew what this meant, what the implications are. Verse 9, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judas to Caesarea and spent time there. So Peter went went and, and escaped there. And Herod has all these soldiers killed. And by the way, that's standard. That's typical. So all the much more, these soldiers are guarding Peter at the risk of their own life, and yet God is able to to spring Peter from jail. But we can't stop. The story doesn't end there, and the next part is an important bracket to the story. So let's just finish it. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So this group of people are coming to Herod to basically beg for uh, food. Um, Verse 21, on on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Okay, this is Herod putting on his full glory, putting on his regal robes, Sitting on his throne as "I am king, I am awesome, look at me," And putting forth this incredible oration to just demonstrate how awesome he is, right So what does God do what's God's response to that? Or actually, the people he's oriating, the people who are coming to him uh, begging for food, what, what's their response? they say? And the people were shouting, "The voice of a God, notice little G, and not of a man." Watch this. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Not a good ending for Herod, right? But the word of God increased and multiplied. And I'm going to end it right there. And really, you look at the story, the beginning of it, who, is, who has the power, or who appears to have the power? It's Herod, right? And who are the weak you know who are the down and outers? It's the early church. It's the Jerusalem church. Right? And it and and they're in jeopardy, are they not? When you think about our own lives, it's like, you know what? Who appears to have the the power in your life? And who appears not to have the power in your life? And the point I think that Luke is making in this story ultimately is God is the one who has the power. It doesn't matter how much some ruler or some king appears to have power. It doesn't matter how much, how dark it may look to you. It doesn't matter that you may be unemployed right now or that you may be facing some illness or some family member is facing some illness, right? It's ultimately God who has the power. And it's ultimately God who is ultimately going to deliver all of us through his gospel, through his church. And it's the church, empowered by God, that is ultimately victorious. And really, I think that's the key point that Luke is making in this story. And, you know, this, we, we're in this series now about prayer, and, and it would be tempting to say, you know, kind of pat everybody on the head and say, you know what, as you go through life and you go through the challenges of life, don't worry because God, God has the power. You know, it may look dark, it may look grim, it may look disappointing, it may be not going the way you're, you want it to go, you may feel overwhelmed, but you know what, God has the power and in the end he's, he wins, so buck, buck up, you know, cheer up, don't worry, right? It'd be tempted to just kind of end that way. But I think it, at least for me personally, I'm not quite satisfied with that answer. So I want to kind of press a little deeper here and press into, I think, what I think is the core question that a lot of us have anytime we start talking about prayer, and the men yesterday, we had a lot of discussion about that. What does it mean? What's an effective prayer? What's an earnest prayer? You know? If you're earnest enough, will God answer the prayer? Does God have like an earnest meter? And once you get to that level of earnestly, okay, then, then He's going to answer that prayer? You know, the, how does that work? What happens when God says no? What happens when God gives us, quote-unquote, an answered prayer, which a lot of times from my perspective, an answer prayers prayer is a no, right? He did answer. He said no, right? What do we do with that? So that's, I want to push into that. And really, there's a character in the story that has a really minor part, but it, but it speaks to this question, and it's right at the beginning of the story. What about James? You know, God saved Peter. God delivered Peter from prison, delivered him from being killed by Herod. But what about James? James didn't get delivered. James was put in prison and killed by Herod. You know? Was was James somehow less important than Peter? James is one of the three disciples, the inner circle of of Jesus' disciples. Remember in in the story of Jesus, it says, you know what? Jesus withdrew and took James, John, and Peter. Or Peter, James, and John. Whichever word you want to take it. I think normally it says Peter, James, and John. So James is part of the inner circle. He's a core guy. He's right there with Jesus' closest circle of disciples, and yet Jesus chose not to save him from that. What does that mean? What do we do with that? And I think there's a passage, I think, that gives us a lot of insight into that question, and it's, and it's a story that I think many of us are really familiar with. It's the story of Lazarus. So I'm going to look at that. I'm going to kind of... Just hit a few highlights for the sake of time. I'm not going to go through the entire word-for-word story, but hit a couple highlights and just point out, you know, what do we do with this thing called prayer? Okay, God has the power. I don't have the power. As Paul puts it, we are, each of us, earth and clay pots with this treasure inside. We are powerless. God has all the power. Whatever power flows through us flows directly from Him. But what do we do when we're praying earnestly earnestly for something dear to us, and God says no, or God says wait, what do we do with that? So let's go, we're going to go to John chapter 11, and like I said, we're going to skip around a little bit. We'll start with John chapter 11, verse 3, start there, all right, verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, him being Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love, catch that, him him who you love. This is a person that Jesus is very close to and loves very dearly. He whom you love is ill. ill." But But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Isn't that strange? It says Jesus loves this guy deeply and passionately, and then he hears that this guy is sick. And it's not like he's caught a cold, right? The fact that they've sent for Jesus and told Jesus, hey, your friend, your close friend is ill, this is a serious illness, and Jesus' response is, you know what? There's purpose in this illness, and then he just lingers for two days and waits. I mean, wouldn't you think he would just get on the first train, first plane, first car, course, car, whatever, and, and get to where Lazarus is and heal him? But instead, he waits two days. And the first kind of key point I want to make here is all the things that we experience in life, as believers in Christ, have purpose. Even the hard things. Even the painful things. Even the things that we grieve over. Even the things we don't understand. Right? Why, Jesus, are you you waiting two days and my brother is dying? I don't understand that. Why aren't you healing him? I don't understand that. But we need to know, and Jesus says very specifically, in this case, that, you know what, his illness, and even, he'll say a, a little bit later, his death has purpose. And the purpose is for you all is to see the glory of God in me. That's going to be the purpose of this. But the key principle here is there's purpose in all things. Everything that we experience, even the ugly, hurtful, painful things, there's purpose in that. We may not always know what that purpose is. We may go through the rest of our life and get to the end of our life not knowing what that purpose is. Okay? But I can tell you there is a purpose there. And in fact, no matter what you're going through, here's a little homework assignment. Okay? I'm not going to take your time right now. But go to Hebrews chapter 11, read the very end of that chapter. And at the end of that chapter, you will find the answer to the question of God, what is the purpose in this horrible thing that I'm going through? There is a purpose. Even when it's evil, even when it seems purposeless, there's a purpose in the suffering and the fact that we remain on this planet and continue to suffer, there's a purpose in that. So check that out, a little homework assignment, a little tease for you to do a little Bible study this week. So uh, Hebrews chapter 11, read toward the end of that chapter. After he goes through the whole litany of all these great men and women of faith who do amazing things through faith, then see where he lands at the end of the chapter. All right? So, there is purpose. There is purpose in Lazarus' illness, and there is purpose in, in all the suffering and all the waiting that we go through. Okay? Even when it doesn't, it's not clear, it's not obvious. The next verse I want to look at is, I'm going to skip down to uh, verse 32. And this is, now Jesus has gone to see His friend Lazarus, and He's already told, Jesus has already told His disciples, look, Lazarus is, de- is is dead, and I'm and I'm and and so we're going to go see him now. He's died, and uh, you're not going to see this on the screen, but this kind of classic, you know, the disciples, these great men of faith. One of them says, "Well, then let's go there too and die with him." Right? Isn't that a great, <laughs> great, great <laughs> statement of faith? Yeah, he's dead. Let's just go die with him, right? But Jesus is saying, look, you know what? This has great purpose, and you're going to see that, pur- that purpose in person. So going to uh, verse 32, this is when uh, Mary comes out to see Jesus. Lazarus has already died. It says, now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died can you just feel that, that grief of that? Can you relate to that? Lord, if you'd only done this, I wouldn't have suffered in that way. Lord, I don't understand. Why is it I'm looking for a job? Lord, why is this illness impacting my family? I don't understand. If you'd only, Jesus, if you'd only, right? And we just, you can feel that grief that she has. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now watch this, what Jesus' response is. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now didn't Jesus already say that this is going to be for the glory of God? And that he's already given all kinds of clues that he's actually going to raise Lazarus from the dead? And yet... He sees all these people weeping and grieving, and he begins to enter into that grief with them and be with them in that grief, which takes us to the, sh- to the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, he says, 34, and, and he said, where, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, Jesus knows in just a few minutes he's going to bring Lazarus up out of the grave, right? Right? He's already told. He's essentially told that to His disciples already. But He stops and He takes a moment and He enters into this time and this moment of grief with these people and He weeps with, with Mary and with Martha and with the rest of the group who love them so much. And the principle that we can take from that is, you know what? We have, a, we have an empathetic high priest. We have a Lord who understands us. We have a Lord who walks with us. Jesus is with us in the loss and pain of our life, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just say, look, you know, just have faith. Just believe. It'll all come out good in the end, I promise. Just get over yourself. He doesn't say that. But instead, he enters into that grief and he says, I know. I know what that feels like. I know what you're up against. I know the fear and the anxiety and the worry. I know that. I was in that place. I said to my father, Father, why have you forsaken me? I know that place. I sweated blood from the stress of what I was going to face. I know that. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I know what you're going through. And He doesn't just say, get over it. Have faith. He enters into it with you and says, I know you. I know what you're feeling. I'm sorry for that. It has purpose. Hang in there. I'm with you. It has purpose. You may not know the purpose till the day you die and you're in heaven, and then you will. Trust me, you will. But I am with you. That's the Lord we have. And lastly, I want to go to this verse uh, verse 20, which really I think is the core answer to that question. What, what about unanswered prayers? Quote unquote answered, unanswered prayer. What, about, what does that mean that Jesus sometimes says no, many times says no? Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Be, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Notice some faith there. I mean, the hero, one of the heroes of this story, one of the faith heroes of this story is Mary and Martha. They both get that Jesus has the power, right? You know, if, if you had been here... Sorry. Sorry. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha has a great answer. She says, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She has great faith. She knows that he's going to rise again on the last day. She has confidence in God. She's not doubting that. But she's in grief because her brother's died. And that hurts, and that's painful. She knows it's going to come out good in the end. But catch this, and this is really the core answer right here. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. It's me. I'm the answer. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I came that you might have life abundantly. The answer to every one of our prayers is not unanswered. Ultimately, it's not no. The answer to every one of our prayers is Jesus Himself. He is the life. He is the resurrection. He is the hope. He is our salvation. Amen. Amen? It's Jesus, ultimately, that is the satisfier of our souls. Everything that we think we need or we think we want, everything that has got us stressed out, intimidated, freaked out, all of that, The answer is Jesus himself. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the fulfillment of every prayer. Even the no prayer. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Because you know what? He has something better. He has a greater purpose. Even when we can't see that purpose, even when we don't understand the pain and the suffering, and why would there still be evil in this world? He has purpose in that. Amen. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord. Jesus, You're the answer. God, You're the answer to every question. You're the answer to every prayer. You're the answer to every hope, every dream, every passion, every desire. You are the answer. You are the fulfillment, God, of our lives. And we surrender ourselves once again to You and we, we call upon Your name, Father, Lord, as we seek first the kingdom of God, we know that You will add all these things to us. Father, in Your timing and in Your purposes, and we trust that. And along the way, we know that You are with us and that You walk with us even in the worst times, especially in the worst times. And You grieve with us and You hurt with us. God, and we just praise You for that. We love You, Lord. Amen.